Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linnan. We spend an awful lot of time in this podcast hearing from our own journalists and from others about what dynamics are at play or driving the decisions of those who hold the reins of power. And we do occasionally hear from ministers and others in government about their side of that story, or at least the bits of it which they choose to reveal to us. But we don't often get to hear from those who have actually been involved in the day-to-day strategising, jockeying for power and outright firefighting, which goes on behind the scenes at senior ministerial level. All of which means that I am delighted to welcome this week's guest, Ed Brophy. Ed was a special advisor to two different ministers from two different parties and two successive governments. And in 2011, he was hired by Joan Burton when she entered government as Minister for Social Protection in that Fine Gael Labour coalition. And over the course of that government, of course, Burton became leader of the party and Taunashta. And following the Labour wipeout at the 2016 election, Ed went on to work for Pascal Donoghue and he remained with the current Minister for Finance until leaving that role earlier this summer. Ed, you're very welcome. Hi, uh, hi Hugh. Hi, uh, hi, Pat. Hi, Pat. I should say Pat is here as well, as always. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Hugh. Ed, I suppose we could go back to that moment in, in 2011 when uh, when you got the job, I suppose. Labour and Fine Gael had uh, just scored a thumping victory in the 2011 general election. Fianna Fáil had been humiliated. The two parties going into into government was probably the largest majority in the history of the state. They had more than 55, 56% of, of the vote. What was the mood as that government is being formed and while you got your job? Yeah, I mean, the mood the mood was uh, a real mix. It was uh, trepidation because I think everyone knew the scale of the task ahead. The state was effectively insolvent and bankrupt. And also, I suppose, uh, excitement and exultation because, you know, it had been a very, very significant victory and, you know, there was an enormous majority. I guess my thoughts going into it were really that perhaps the kind of dangers ahead were underestimated. And I think the reason for that was I had, you know, throughout the campaign become increasingly concerned that the rhetoric of the campaign was that there was a kind of a better way to get out of the, uh, you know, the Troika arrangement or the, you know, the bailout programme than had been uh, executed by the previous Fianna Fáil government and that there would be a better way, it would be fairer uh, and people would, you know, buy into that. Um, and I really don't, didn't really feel any illusions about that. You know, I never, I was never under any particular illusions that that was going to be just enormously difficult, enormously challenging uh, and create real political danger and damage for the two parties in government. Uh, and that's kind of what happened. So this was uh, Frankfurt's way or Labour's way, I seem to recall. Frankfurt's way or Labour's way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, turned out to be Frankfurt's way, I think. Uh, it turned out to be, uh, no, it turned out to be a mix. I think, I think it turned out to be a mix of Frankfurt's way and Labour's way. Cause had it been Frankfurt's way, uh, for example, the uh, Anglo bond would have continued to be paid of three and a half billion a year. Uh, that was then cancelled uh, by that government, I think, in early 2013. In fact, I remember sitting in the Dáil very late one evening or early one morning uh, and looking at you in the press gallery across the way, Pat, uh, when, uh, when the Anglo bond was being cancelled by that government. Uh, and I remember a subsequent government minister by the name of Mr Shane Ross uh, objecting in strenuous terms at how outrageous it was that the Dáil was being dragged in 
uh, to, 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 to do this perfidious act, but uh, actually it turned out to be a very good act and it, it transformed the public finances. So I don't think it's fair to say it was just Frankfurt's way, uh, you know, and it also wasn't just Labour's way. But certainly I think in setting expectations that could really not be met because of the fiscal and you know, budgetary reality the stage confronted, uh, I think the seeds of that government's, uh, you know, subsequent destruction were laid uh, really very well, early on. Was there a sense among Labour in particular, because maybe both parties overpromised, but I think there's not much doubt, as Pat was hinting there, that Labour promised more than Fine Gael did. Were the Labour ministers in the coalition conscious that that was a burden which they were carrying as a result of that 2011 campaign? Of course they were, yeah. I mean, sure, it, it, it hung around them, it hung around them uh, you know, permanently throughout, throughout that government, you know. Um, and, you know, it look, it's very easy to, in retrospect, say, you know, certain things should have been done differently in campaigns. Uh, you know, but I think certainly that the political reality is that that burden definitely hung around Labour uh, to a far greater extent than it hung around uh, Fine Gael. And in many ways, because I suppose Labour's electorate or, you know, the coalition that gave Labour that historical, uh, you know, um, result expected something different. So, you know, the, the mismatch between the expectations of the, expectations of the electorate and what could or would be delivered subsequently by that government uh, we just, just, you know, was an ongoing, um, you know, political weakness for Labour in, the, in that coalition. And le- less so for Fine Gael, perhaps because their coalition expected different things or were less, you know, sensitised to some of the decisions that that government would have to make. And to what extent then, um, entering power in the spring, early spring of 2011, to what extent were you constrained? I, I mean, OK, you make the point there in relation to um, to those bonds, but the reality was that the, the sort of the parameters for recovery and the programme of austerity had been set, first of all, by, by Brian Lenehan and the preceding government, um, and then even more so by the arrival of the Troika and that whole humiliating process which had happened in the in the six months beforehand and the rules which had been set as a result of that. You mean how, how constrained were... You, uh, exactly. How yeah. much freedom of how, how much freedom of manoeuvre did that new government actually feel it had? I mean, in truth, it had very little freedom from manoeuvre. And, and remember, remember, you know, very early on in that government, uh, the attempt, attempt was made to, you know, gain some freedom uh, by Michael Noonan in, um, in, 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 in cancelling uh, certain bonds... Uh, and famously, in retrospect, he was told by the then head of the European Central Bank, uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, that uh, if if he were to happen, you know, if that were to happen, a bomb would go off and it wouldn't go off in Frankfurt, it would go off in Dublin. I think this was really when the minister was on his way into the doll to uh, to announce that. So any, you know, attempts that were made to free up more space or to get more uh, free of some of the constraints around the Troika were very, very strongly resisted by the Troika at the time. Uh, and you know that 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 made that government's job much more difficult. I mean, even when it came to the cancellation of the Anglo bond, uh, in reality, uh, you know, no one was really sure what the ECB were going to say. Uh, and I think it was only really the fact that Draghi had become the president of the ECB uh, earlier that year in 2012, and then in early thir- 2013, uh, and his response was that he noted the transaction and that was it. And you know, we knew then that we were kind of free and that we had we'd made we'd made the right decision and that the ECB weren't going to push back on it, but. You know, we never knew that uh, in general uh, before that. And so any attempts to kind of, you know, free yourself from some, some of the constraints, do things differently, were absolutely, you know, stoutly and vigorously uh, stopped and uh, pushed back on by, by the Troika, you know. Uh, that, that, that was the reality we faced. Um, and that's why the kind of experience of the, this government and the, the response to the, the most recent kind of crisis has just been so strikingly different um, from a European perspective. I think... The, the government at that time, its its first big decision, which I'm not sure was ever a an explicit 
conscious decision it was made, it was something it simply accepted, was to accept the terms and conditions of the bailout. It said it would work to try and change them, but it never seriously considered actually rejecting the terms uh, of uh, of the bailout. Is that right? That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And like, why why was that? Uh, I mean, it, it couldn't reject the terms of the bailout. The, 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 the terms of the bailout had been had bound the Irish state to an agreement with the Troika, who were the only people who was lending the Irish state money at that time. So, I mean, the clear implication of rejecting that uh, arrangement would have been that... It was a default. Well, well, not... Yeah, you, you can call it default, but it would, it would have, it would have, been, it would have the, been a default on running the risk of crashing out of the euro, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it would have been default. You know, yeah, but, but I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, people say default, but like, what, what does that mean? It means... You know, in order to pay the salaries of the guards, the nurses, you know, that kind of thing, the RSA would have got to gone elsewhere to borrow money, uh, and no one else was lending it money. So it would have had to gone to, you know, where where could it have gone to get money? I mean, it probably could have but gone it w- to. Some, it would have had to balance its income and expenditure more or less overnight, or, or that, yeah, which would have been, in, 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 you know, impossible to do. So, like again, the constraints that that government faced, you know, led it in a particular direction, um, because all the alternatives were so, uh, you know, appalling and and and, and impossible to. Uh, contemplate. I, I guess the political problem was that um, throughout the campaign that preceded it, uh, by you know accident or design or or impression that was given uh, by both parties, was that 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 you know there would be a way of doing this in a better, fairer way that would impose less um, you know impose less pain on the Irish people. Uh, and actually, really, when that government came into office, that just wasn't uh, an option that was available. And yes, we were able to chip away at it at the edges. Uh, but not in a way that was meaningful to uh, to the electorate. So what did that mean for you and for your, your boss at the time, Joan Burton? She's Minister for Social Protection, which at a time of austerity and economic collapse, essentially, in, in some ways, is a pretty tough gig to have. So presumably what she's doing is trying to fend off some cuts, but having to compromise on others, and then to come out with a smile on her face on budget day and say she'd done the best she possibly could. It's a tricky enough and not a particularly pleasant manoeuvre for any politician, is it? No, and especially one who, you know, was a strong believer in the kind of, you know, social welfare state and in social protection, you know, like Joan was, and and is. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was doing the very opposite of what, you know, her political instincts would have been. So it was cutting you know, uh, welfare schemes, cutting, you know, protection for people, cutting uh, income supports for people who, you know, her natural political instinct would be to protect all of those people. So, no, it was it was it was very, very, very difficult. Um, the the difficulty about it, I guess, in, in, a, in a broader sense, was that actually the cuts that we were making at a kind of macro level, uh, you know, with a social welfare budget of about 20 billion were 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 you know, we're not we're not enormous. You know, we were cutting maybe 400, 500 million in, in a number of those austerity budgets. You know, the difficulty was that they they affected individuals in very, very, you know, tangible ways. So while at a macro level, we were absolutely protecting the social protection system. Uh, and, you know, much of the analysis suggests that Ireland's way of dealing with the uh, bailout and with the Troika, you know, was done in a way that, you know, preserved, uh, you know, income inequality, income equality, to a far greater extent than other countries, uh, it didn't really matter politically because you know a reduction in loan parent support, uh, you know the you know cutting the rest by care grant. Each single one of these were just enormously politically damaging, and there was no real way to gainsay that. Um, so I mean, Joan's strategy was always uh, if there was a number of X indicated for social welfare cuts, you know, in the coming budget, she was going to get it down as much as possible, and she was going to use all her political 
news capital uh, and you know uh, you know um i guess ultimately just kind of uh, cussedness uh, to to push back on that like you know and to say to people you know that's that's too important i can't do that so that that was it but it, that that was the kind of that was the strategy the strategy was we knew there were going to be cuts we knew they were all going to be very damaging uh you know when we started with a blank uh, you know sheet of paper every year before the budget our intention was to just get those cuts down for as much as possible the problem for the government was you know, that that meant that other ministers would have to face bigger cuts. And there was constantly this kind of uh, standoff between the bigger spending departments. So mainly ourselves and the Department of Health, which was under James Riley at the time, uh, and uh, to a lesser extent, maybe the Department of Education um, under Rory Quinn. So like it was, it was, it was, it, it was you know, even, even if that strategy worked on its own terms uh, for Joan and for myself and for the Department of Social Protection, at a kind of a government level, it didn't really make the government's job any easier because ultimately the government was going to be faced with, you know, really, really, really difficult, uh, kind of you know politically uh, uncontemplatable cuts to other programs and other departments. Um, uh, but that was where we found ourselves. I think at the time, just remembering back to it, Joan Burton's opposition to some of the cuts and the tactics she used within government and in advance of budgets in the media aroused the. Uh, anger of Fine Gael to an extent that Fine Gael also tried to punish Labour. Um, I mean, I don't think in many of those budgets they gave you a great degree of help. And I always remember the the, the Labour ad, which was terribly effective during the uh, latter stage of the 2011 campaign based on a Tesco ad. And it was Fine Gael, every little hurts. And it all these awful things that uh, that Labour or that Fine Gael were going to do in government, Labour was alleging. And more or less every one of them was subsequently done. Labour had said, vote for us, and we will stop these terrible things from happening. And more or less every one of them was subsequently done in government. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think in, re- in retrospect, uh, and retrospect of wisdom is always wonderful in politics, that ad kind of, you know, looked particularly, uh, particularly good. Um in terms, in terms of Joan's tactics and how that worked with um, with with Fine Gael, I mean, you know, jo- Joan brought, I suppose, you know, some political street fighting ability to to government uh, in a way that maybe, you know, uh, other people weren't comfortable with, you know. But that was as far as she perceived it, you know, her job, and it was done for political reasons. But it was also done because, you know, her 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 instinct was that we needed to protect social protection. Um, you know, and we needed to do that because if you looked at other countries that had gone through bailout programs, you know, the things that were always hit the most were social protection schemes, uh, which then took years to kind of recover. And it took the people who suffered from those losses years to recover. They were the most vulnerable. So, I mean, it was something she was doing uh, with, you know, the absolutely you know, best of political convictions. It definitely upset some people. Absolutely. Uh, and it affected relations in that government. Uh, and relations in that government, despite the fact that people often say that that government looked very calm in the exterior, relations were very difficult uh, often in that government, particularly around budgets. Uh, and certainly, you know, some of the kind of approach that Joan uh, and myself uh, adopted may, may have played into that. But we still felt we were doing the right thing, uh, you know, given given the given the hand we had been dealt. And was that were those difficulties? Did they play out? solely on a labor finnegal axis or did the one of the other notable things about this period of course is the is the institution the kind of splitting up of of financial responsibilities between two separate uh, ministers and at that time it would have been Michael Noonan as minister for finance and Brendan Howland um as on the public on the public finances area so 
Was it Labour versus Fine Gael or was it more complicated than that? Uh, it was more complicated than that, but ultimately Labour always, and Brendan Howell in particular, always had Jones back, ultimately. So yes, there would have been internal tensions within Labour and yes, you know, uh, some people would have felt that Joan wasn't as much of a team player as she could have been. But ultimately, when it came down to it, when it came down to kind of brass tacks and the nuts and bolts of budgets, uh, you know, Brendan Howland always ultimately had her back because his political project is no different to hers. I mean, he's a social democrat. I mean, he believed ultimately in the protection to the extent we could of social welfare, of the most vulnerable, of incomes for those people, of schemes and support. So, I mean, he was he was not entering into any of that with any with any desire to undercut that any further. So, no, I, I think ultimately it held together. There were tensions, uh, but I think ultimately Labour held together and Brendan Hallam was very supportive uh you know, with every budget we ever did. But then, of course, it was a complete disaster for them at the 2016 election. Pat, can I just ask you this? Um, Regardless of posters that went up during the 2011 campaign, wasn't Labour essentially signing its own existential warrant by going into this government and the best that it could possibly do from the social democratic perspective was to ameliorate uh, some of the the austerity measures which were inevitably going to happen? So it was bound to suffer as a consequence of that decision to go in. Yes, it absolutely was. But did it have to be as terrible a defeat in 2016 as it turned out to be? Perhaps not. I mean, I think if you go back to that 20, uh, 2011 decision to enter government, I remember actually the Labour convention at which it was decided uh, to, to enter government. It was held in the O'Reilly Hall in UCD, I think uh, the Sunday after the election. And there really was, I mean, there were a few voices raised in, uh, there was a few voices raised in opposition to going in warning that the Labour Party would be decimated if they uh, if they entered government, would be Fine Gael's mudguard, etc., etc. But the overwhelming sense of that conference was that you know we have asked for a mandate, we've got a substantial vote, we have to go, we have to go into government. And really, if you think of the counterfactual, what would have been the the public facing justification for not going into government? No, uh, you know we're you know we're going to sit in opposition because it is to our political advantage uh, to do so at a time of existential crisis for the country. So I, I, I don't think having fought the campaign that they well, did... Well, hold on a second. Mm. Let, let, let me give you another counterfactual mm. and maybe I put this to you, Ed. Mm. What if Labour had said, we do not agree with these policies being imposed from Brussels or wherever they're being mm-hmm. imposed from. Mm-hmm. We did not agree with the policies of the Fianna Fáil government. Mm-hmm. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are closer ideologically. Mm-hmm. Let them go in and sort out this mess that we did not make. Yeah, except that, that presupposes that that was on the table, uh, and it wasn't on the table. You know, it 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 definitely wasn't. But I think I think the other thing that it presupposes is that Labour, you know, felt that by going in, it could improve some of these uh, these, these policies and improve some of the outcomes for the people that it was there to to help and there to support and there to protect. So, you know, it it, it was it was based on 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 a on I suppose an economic on a political calculation and a political decision that. The alternative was not on the table. Uh, you know, the much, the much vaunted uh, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition of 2011, it just, it just wasn't something that was ever on the table. Um, you know, it's been, it's been the subject of some columns, uh, but I've never seen it, you know, as a practical political reality. But the other thing is, I think by going in, Labour, you know, felt that, yes, it would face enormous difficulties and, yes, it would disappoint many of the people who had voted for it, and yes, it would not meet uh, their expectations or the high expectations of some of the media people who at the time were friends of Labour's. 
uh, and subsequently, uh, you know, subsequently left it behind. Uh, but what it could do uh, would be to improve uh, the lives of people uh, by taking control of key departments where it felt it could do things better. And I mean, the record of that government, you know, we can talk about it uh, at length. Um, I think sometimes the record of that government gets kind of obscured by the political you know, outcome of that government, which was this this terrible defeat for Labour and a very bad result for Fine Gael. And people sometimes kind of, you know, don't look back and see, you know, some of the things that that government managed to do, which were, you know, very effective. Um, you know, it got Ireland out of the bailout. Uh, it, 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 you know, presided over a very strong economic recovery, uh, which had jobs at their hearts. It wasn't like a jobless recovery as we'd had before in this country. Uh, it's you know, managed the bailout program in a way that preserved uh, equality far more than uh, any other country that was in a bailout. Uh, and it presided over enormous social change with the marriage equality referendum. So, like, that that government did a lot. Yes, it, there's a lot it didn't do. Uh, and it certainly, you know, disappointed some expectations of people who felt that there was a better, fairer way. Uh, but, you know, on balance and when you do the full accounting... What you know was Labour right to go into the gov- that government? Uh, I still think it absolutely was because I think it was able to do, you know, good things for the people and positive things for the people who voted for it. And whether that was you know the political reckoning at the end or not, you know, is is another question. But in terms of substantively what that government did, I think that government uh, you know did a lot of good. There's a reality as well, Pat. Can I ask? Is that just in relation to that? There's a reality as well, which is that this is this thing is sometimes mischaracterized as politicians grubbly wanting to get their hands on the lever of power. But politicians, or most politicians, do want to get into power to to pursue the policies which they spent their they spent their lives arguing for, and that's very legitimate. And particularly when a party like like Labour had been out of power for a decade and a half at that point, it's quite understandable that the politicians of the generation of Brendan Howell and John Burton and Rory Quinn wanted to get back into government because that's what, as far as they were concerned, that's what politics was for. Well, a politician who doesn't want to get into government is of very limited utility. I won't say they're completely useless, but uh, their utility to the public is, uh, is, 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 I think, severely limited. I think the strategic mistake that both parties made was in remaining in government after the exit from the bailout, after the, uh, you know, the fiscal independence to some degree had been regained, after a recovery had been put in place. I think they should have at then, at, at that stage, gone to the electorate and said, we have done what we can, we need a fresh uh, we need a fresh mandate for the future. And before you accuse me of hindsight, I think I wrote uh, I wrote pretty similar stuff uh, at the uh, at the time because I think what happened that government after it took a bit of a shellacking in the twenty fourteen local and European elections, it was obviously a change of leadership in the Labour Party. Eamon Gilmore resigned. Joan Burton uh, became leader. Ed moved into swanky new offices uh, uh, in government buildings. Hardly. And uh, and I. Uh, I, I think that at that stage, the government struggled to articulate a purpose, to define any forward momentum. In fact, it went into reverse, really, abandoning its plan to introduce water charges for understandable reasons. And from then, from late 14 until early 16, the government was constantly on the back foot. So, uh, you know, we can never know, but I think 
if the government had gone for a general election either in 2013 after the exit from the bailout, in 2014 or even in 2015, I don't think that the result would necessarily have been as bad for Labour as it turned out to be. You know, to just push back a little bit on that counterfactual uh, past, you know, you know, the actual you know, lived experiment of the 2014 local and European elections would suggest otherwise. I mean, the go- both government parties did very, very badly in those elections. And I, I just think if you're suggesting that they should have had a general election at that stage as well, I'm just, I'm just not sure if that would have gone particularly well. Where I do agree with you is that the government lost its initiative after we left the bailout. Like, definitely it lost its momentum. Uh, because, you know, and you, you, you know this having watched governments over the years, all governments have to have a sense of purpose, have a sense of momentum. And, like, the big sense of purpose of that government was get us out of the bailout, get the economic recovery going, get people back to work. That was, that was it. And actually, there was a complete sense of purpose and a, and a, and a coherence, actually, across all the parties on that. Like, the, the, the two parties worked pretty well on all that. Uh, that kind of atrophied and then just kind of, you know, disappeared, really, after we got out of the bailout. Uh, and the period after the bailout from, you know, early 2014 until mid-2016 was just one rolling uh, political difficulty after another. Like, you know, the Garda stuff... Uh, the water charges you've alluded to, and just various other things. And the government really was never able to get, uh, you know, its initiative back, despite the fact that actually the external picture was really good. I mean, the econ- economic recovery was really strong. People were going back to work. Uh, you know, the mood of the country, I think, probably lifted. Uh, but the government didn't get any political uh, bans from that. And, you know, uh, the, the rest is history. So the 2016 election happens and Labour, as you said, is... As, as good as wiped out, essentially. It's a really shocking result, a disastrous result for the party. You're out of a job, um, but then you get offered a job by the other crowd. Because that happened, I do I do wonder about that. How uh, strong are the party affiliations of the advisor teams around different ministers? Uh, I mean, does that kind of travelling from one from one party to another happen much? Well, I mean, it kind of depends. I mean, some people are obviously very involved with parties beforehand and then they get jobs and some people are brought in because they have other... Uh, you know, experience, uh, career experience, and I, I would probably have fallen into the latter camp. Uh, you know, when I when I came to work for Joan, so I'd obviously done some stuff for the Labour Party, but I was never, uh, you know, a Labour member or anything like that. So I, you know, I was brought in because I had different career experience that she was looking for, and different skills. Um, so uh, that that that's one thing, and then and then the other thing as well is, um, I I always do find it somewhat curious that there uh, is criticism about someone who worked for you know, one party going to work for another party in circumstances where both parties were in coalition. I mean, they were able to be politically close enough to have a coalition agreement with each other and, you know, being governed with each other for, for five years. So I, I, I didn't particularly think, uh, you know, there was anything particularly, you know, strange or controversial about that. And, and also, I think, you know, uh, the person I went to work for, Pascal Donoghue, you know, uh, you know, Brendan Howland is very famously on record of saying, you know, if the Labour Party was kind of a Labour Party like it is in the UK, a big kind of mass party, Pascal would probably be in the Labour Party, you know. I mean, he he's he he is on the, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't describe himself as a social democrat, but he's 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 you know you know not really that different in many of his positions from from the Labour Party. So I I didn't feel it was uh, I didn't feel it was an issue, and I also felt that there was considerable amount of unfinished business. Uh, so that government ended badly. It was considerable amount of unfinished business, and I felt that working with Pascal Dunn, who was maybe a way. Of kind of you know working through some of those 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 issues those policies that that you know the previous government hadn't managed to kind of close off or finish, uh, and and that was my experience. I was able to do that. So Pascal Donoghue, if 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 he is as you say, kind of on the more social democratic wing of of Fine Gael, he was a rising star, and then ultimately he replaced Michael Noonan, 
who I wouldn't characterize as being on the social democratic wing of Fine Gael. I think that's right to say. Does that rep- does that represent a shift within Fine Gael then? Well, I mean, Fine Gael changed. I mean, Fine Gael changed very significantly, um, you know, both towards the end of the Kenny government and then with the arrival of Leo Varadkar as leader in Taoiseach. I mean, I remember uh, a Fine Gael advisor, one of, Kenny, one of Kenny's main people, telling me that, like, you know, if, if, if at the beginning of the government in 2011, uh, and Kenny had been told that he would, you know, legalize, you know, legislate for the X case uh, and bring in uh, marriage equality. Uh, you know, people would have in white coats would have taken him out of the office. Like, you know, they were quite conservative on those issues at the start of 2011. Uh, and they'd gone, you know, uh, on a journey to use that cliche uh, during that government, uh, both in economic policy, uh, but also on the kind of liberal agenda. And I guess when Leo Varadkar uh, became leader of Fine Gael and Taoiseach, you know, that, that, he, you know, that, that, that was kind of copper fastened. So it became, you know, a much more socially liberal party than it had previously been. And it maybe harked back to the social liberalism of the, of the Fitzgerald era, uh, in the, in the eighties. So that, that's on the social liberal side. On the economic policy side, maybe less so. I mean, I think, I think, I think Leo Varadkar's economic disposition is a classic liberal. Like, you know, he's a classic, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a classic kind of believer in, um, you know, enterprise, uh, in competitive tax, you know, that kind of thing. Pascal would be slightly different. He would have a slightly different view. He'd be more a believer in the mixed economy, you know, that the state and the market uh, are, key, you know, key constituent parts of the economy. And we need to support both. We can't just, you know, have an economy that's based entirely on the free market. We need the state as a key actor in the economy uh, and a key driver of, you know, economic change and economic progress. So, Slightly different views there, but I think in terms of, you know, the social agenda, yes, Fine Gael became a much more liberal party and, and, and is a much more, you know, socially liberal party than it, than it, than it, than it had been previously. Pascal Dunn is also the Minister for Finance who's just produced a budget that had, in its, you know, discretionary changes on budget day, had nine parts increases in public spending to one part tax cuts. So, I mean, you know, I think Fine Gael has moved. I'm not sure what you call a budget that does that, but most people you know, in other countries would refer to that as a social democratic budget. Yeah, and, 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 and look, you know, one of the great kind of geniuses of the kind of two large parties in Irish political life, in Fáil and Fine Gael, has been their ability to pivot uh, when the centre of politics, you know, moved and, and, to, and to kind of align themselves to that new centre, to that new kind of settlement uh, in Irish politics, whatever it is. To the extent that that new centre is now social democratic on economic policy, you know, they, they have realigned themselves uh, uh, to that. And, you know, I suppose what I'm saying about Pascal Donoghue is he probably, you know, was maybe ahead of the game on that, uh, you know, I think because I think that is his natural conviction anyway. Um, so I think where Fine Gael is at on economic policy now uh, is, you know, you know, is consistent with where he's always been. It's just the rest of the party has probably been on a, on a, on a, on a, on a journey to that place as well. Um you know, and it's taken it a while, but that that that's where it is. And you're absolutely right. I mean, but you know, Irish budgets now are predominantly about spending, and they're really not very much about tax at all. Pat, I mean, you have written more than once, I think, about the political journey of Leo Varadkar, and in particular the way in which he has moved on, or appears to have moved on economic matters in particular, while retaining the social liberalism. Uh, he seems less keen on the people who get up in the morning thing now than he was a few years ago. <laughs> well, as we know, he missed a Morning Ireland interview last week because he didn't get up early in the morning. So perhaps this is a, a, an aspect of his lived experience playing into his politics. But 
But not to be, uh, uh, you know, not to be flippant about it. I think there's something about government that tends to convince politicians of the utility of government and the ability of government to make changes in people's lives. And that invariably leads them, you know, to a position where they're more interested in public spending than in tax cuts. Now, I think there is a danger with Leo Varadkar, and I wrote about this again recently, where, you know, he is... Uh, you know, he wants to have his cake and eat it a little bit, where he is, you know, talking about tax cuts, but he's also talking about tax tax funded, uh, taxpayer funded uh, one off giveaways uh, in in some respects. Um, but uh, but also in embedding long term public spending increases into the health service. It was Leo Varadkar who first argued that the health service should retain all of the extra four billion it got last year, half of which was to to deal with COVID. So these are very much not the sort of things one expects to hear from a fiscal conservative, which I think Leo would probably admit himself is where he was uh, 10 years ago. But, you know, I think I've said it on this podcast recently that Brendan Howland used to uh, joke only uh, uh, only half in jest, I think, that, you know, Labour's greatest achievement uh, in, in government between 2011 and 2016 was to make a social democrat out of Leo Varadkar. Mr. Varadkar might, uh, might dispute that tag, but it is certainly true that many of the policies that he espouses fit under it now. But it is true also, isn't it, Ed, that, that larger forces are, are at work here? Yeah. I think, you, I mean, you've been writing a little bit about this yourself over, mm. over the last while, which mm. is that, particularly in the wake of COVID, but actually before that, with the rise of new forms of populism of left and right, there's been a repositioning of, of financial orthodoxy among economists and mm-hmm. economic thinkers, mm-hmm. as well as among politicians, mm. in terms of what the what the ambit of the state is, mm. how how much resources it can draw on, and generally more towards a more a more interventionist state and what's called, I think, modern monetary theory. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, this this is something we see we see uh, we see everywhere. I mean, even even the uh, even the, uh, the the former president of the United States, Mr. Trump. You know. When you you know get behind all the kind of uh, you know the anti democratic stuff and the and the kind of strange way of conducting himself, you know if you look at his policy program, what he sold to people, it was not a Republican policy program at all. Now he governed as a classic Republican. He was governed as a classic tax cutting Republican, you know, because that's the way Congress directed him. But you know his his whole program was about you know keep on paying Medicare, keep on paying entitlements, big infrastructure investment, you know. It, it, it was it was definitely not a small state Republican uh, agenda. We see it with Mr. Johnson uh, in the UK as well, who you know has never seen a spending uh, proposal that he doesn't like, and actually always has another one uh, to to offer as well. Like so, I mean that that is that is that is certainly the way. Um, I think the danger about this is both economic and political, though. Um, and 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 I've written a bit about the economics. I mean that that's all fine. I mean I I am very much a believer in in a strong uh, state, an effective state, maybe more than like the size of the state. I just think we get a little bit obsessed about the size of the state, and we don't talk about the effectiveness of the state. And the size of the state argument kind of in some way kind of you know means we don't spend enough time looking at what the state actually does and what we wanted to do. So that 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 that's something I believe in. But you've got to pay for it, you know, over the economic cycle, over the, over the cycle, you've got to pay for it. You cannot fund a permanently bigger state by uh, by issuing bonds uh, that are bought uh, by investors. You just can't do that. You can do that for infrastructure, you can do that for capital spending, and you can have a kind of a golden rule where you borrow only to invest over the economic cycle. Gordon Brown famously did that in the 2000s, and it was very successful. Uh, but you can't, you know, pay nurses' salaries, guard salaries, that kind of thing, teacher salaries, 
by borrowing in the uh, in the bond markets. You can't do that. Uh, and so we got to, we you know we we will have to stop doing that. I think probably what's happened is because most of the bonds are being bought by central banks. There's kind of a circularity about it now. So the state is selling its own debt to its own central banks. So therefore, some politicians perceive there to be no real budget constraint at all. And in a way, the government has been operating without a budget constraint for the last 18 months. So I think the recent budget uh, was kind of important in that regard. I think despite the fact that it was there was quite a lot of spending, I think Pascal Dunhu and Michael McGrath, you know, very much indicated that there was going to have to be a spending rule. You know, spending can only grow at a certain rate. Uh, and that they would only be borrowing to invest from, I think, next year uh, onwards. And look, I'm, I I hope that they're successful in that. And I think it's important for the credibility of the government and the state that that happens. Um, but otherwise, I think, yeah, you get into a situation where, you know, no project uh, is, is not liked and spending is just considered to be just, you know, something uh, that doesn't get queried or in- interrogated. I think the political difficulty is something that probably hasn't been talked about enough. And, and I think it's very real. If you look at the likes of Mr. Trump, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Orban, uh, people like that, um, what, what they're promising really uh, is, is you know, a bigger state. So kind of social democratic economics with kind of right wing authoritarian politics, you know, uh, and, you know, I wouldn't kind of too heavily draw the political analog here with, you know, what we've seen before. Uh, in the twentieth century, when that plays out, but I mean, it's it's it it it, it can be quite disturbing, you know. So, uh, it, you know, it it is a concern, and it's it it's very much you know predicated on an anti-immigrant politics. So it's like you know, we will spend a lot more. We will give it to you, the true people of America, Britain or Hungary or whoever it is, uh, and we won't let the foreigners have any of it. Uh, and we will kind of you know align it with this populist authoritarian politics that, you know, delivers us, you know, political power over over a long period of time. I think that's where it's dangerous politically. I don't perceive that danger in Ireland, uh, particularly, but I do think there is that edge to this, you know, you know, increase in the frontiers of the state uh, that we see in, in other countries um, that probably hasn't probably been properly litigated. And I think it's something we do need to be very careful about. Why do you think we don't see it in Ireland? Um, we don't see it in Ireland because... The parties in power uh, do not pursue that kind of politics, uh, and the main opposition party uh, has not pursued an, an anti-immigrant, uh, anti-immigration politics, despite the fact that maybe twenty percent of its electorate would like it to do that. So that that hasn't happened yet. Uh, but you know, there are no uh, you know there are no ultimate limits to the way politics plays out. So I don't think we should be complacent about that. Uh, but we certainly haven't seen it yet. And in fairness to Sinn Fein. You know, they could have played the anti-immigrant card and they could have played that kind of, you know, big state authoritarianism card much more. Uh, the fact that they haven't to date is certainly to their credit and it's one of the things I would credit them uh, for. Pat, can I ask you something about Pascal Donoghue then? Because one of the interesting things about the budget was that sort of last minute shimmy around how much money was actually available and perhaps even a bit of kind of clever card playing on the part of Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue and it turned out that they actually had a little bit more money, but they didn't tell anybody about it, which says something, doesn't it? As much as anything, it sends a signal about their priorities and, and their their political sensibilities. Yeah, less a last-minute shimmy than kind of a last-minute anti-shimmy. It was the <laughs> lack of the shimmy, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, not to get too technical about it, uh, was, the, was the instructive thing. So, you know, let us recap what, what happened, that in July, with a summer economic, economic statement, the, uh, the government adjusted its 
uh, its long-term fiscal parameters and said that it would borrow more over the period of this uh, government, but it would move to period over the next two years, whereas Ed says it would reduce or eliminate borrowing for uh, for current expenditure, borrow only for very very borrow substantially and above the European average for uh, for investment purposes to answer the needs in infrastructure, particularly in housing and, uh, and 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 so forth. And in doing that, it set a budget day ceiling of four point seven billion euros, which is a very big budget by the standards of what would be typical in uh, in in recent years, with the exception obviously, of last year's uh, COVID budget, where, you know, 20 billion was, uh, uh, you know, was borrowed to meet the costs of COVID in all their manifestations. Now, between July and, you know, D-Day for the budget uh, in, in, in early October, the state's fiscal position improved dramatically in that there was a much quicker uh, economic rebound than had been anticipated and taxes flowing currently still flowing into the exchequer's coffers. Now, what we would have expected to happen there and what certainly I think would have happened in previous years, again, last year expected, is that there would have been a, a, a jump on budget day. Ed will be no stranger uh, in the past to finding a couple of hundred million euros or a billion euros down the back of the couch in the Department of Finance on budget day to solve all sorts of political problems. And then the budget day ceiling would uh, would would rise. And I, for one, expected it to rise at least above uh, uh, above five billion and, and possibly beyond that. But it didn't. Now, exactly what happened behind the scenes, I don't yet know. But I'm pretty sure that there was an effort made by not just spending departments, but, you know, perhaps by the centre of government, by the party leaders, to ease the political pressure on them by increasing spending beyond the 4.7 billion euros on, uh, on budget day. And despite the fact that they had the resources at their disposal to do that, uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath didn't do it. And I think that tells us a couple of important things about the balance of power within government, about their partnership, which it seems to me is the most important axis within the coalition uh, government, but also uh, about the uh, uh, you know, but also about the the caution that as long as they are in charge of it, will mark the uh, the state's uh, fiscal behaviour and spending plans. And I think that that is an important uh, development. And I think it's gone somewhat under the radar uh, in the reaction to the budget. I mean, Pat's point there, mm. Ed, about the axis between mm. the, the two ministries of finance and public expenditure and reform, as I mentioned earlier, the same axis existed in the 2011-2016 government. And then it was done away with for a while. And now it's back again. Yeah. And it does, it does really reinforce the primacy of essentially the Department of Finance in, mm. in, in manifested these two departments now within government, particularly when significant heavyweights from the two main parties in government occupy those positions and establish a good working relationship, which also happened with Howland and Noonan, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does. I mean, I mean, I mean, the alternative is that you would just have a single department of finance, and people would say that it was too overmighty and too 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 powerful as well. But but I mean, in in dividing them into two departments, uh, some of that power uh, is 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 maintained. And you know, my experience is that it probably makes sense to do it like that. I mean, you probably need to do it in a coalition like we have at the moment, uh, where you know both parties will want to have uh, you know one of those departments. 
it didn't happen in the confidence and supply uh, period, which was, I, I suppose, strange because, you know, it was effectively a Fianna, Fianna Gael single party government uh, with Pascal Donoghue for most of that period as Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure. Uh, and and that was that was a very, very big ask for anyone. I mean, it, it is, you know, it, it is an enormous, it is an enormous job. So I think it's, I think it's better administratively and it's better politically uh, if you have the two departments. Um, they, they would, they would say that, um, you know, Pat's, Pat's right. There was no move on budget day and that does tell you something. And it tells you something about the, you know, them asserting their power and, and about the functional relationship between the two ministers withstanding calls from other departments for increases given how much more money was available. Uh, but the departments would say that you know, spending is at an extraordinarily high level uh, and the extraordinarily high level of spending has been locked in from the pandemic, you know. So, you know, in, in, their, in their world, you know, what, what the state is now doing budget-wise is that a kind of a, it's a level shift beyond where it was before the pandemic uh, and an awful lot that's just been locked in. Uh, the state will spend, I think, ninety-five billion uh, in twenty twenty-five. It was spending seventy billion in twenty twenty at the height of the pandemic. So, like, the, you know, in anyone's language, that is an enormous expansion in the scale of the you know spending in the state and the state's role in the economy. Uh, so that's the way they would see it, uh, and they would see you know the questions that we should be asking is you know the questions that I was asking before: is that effective? What should the state be doing? What do we want the state to be doing? How do we fund it? Do we borrow? Do we tax? Do, you know, do we invest? So they're the questions they would be asking. Uh, and I think they're the pertinent questions. Uh, and I think the fact that, you know, you have a very strong relationship at the centre uh, of Marion Street between the two uh, ministers and the two departments, you know, with new secretary generals, uh, hopefully in a position to assert themselves. I, th- I, think it's, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's critical. I mean, some people complain about the dead hand, the finance and the treasury view and, and that kind of thing. Um, but you just do need that uh, in a government because otherwise, uh, you know, lots of bad things can happen. Uh, and, you know, it's when the bad things happen that the fingers get pointed uh, after the event, as we, you know, discovered in this country about a decade ago and we discovered previously. Uh, so I think having a strong institutional political presence uh, of those two departments is absolutely critical to the success of any government. And it would be this, exactly the same under a Sinn Féin government, uh, under a Sinn Féin-led government. Uh, and remember, it would be a Sinn Féin-led government. They would be in government with other parties, so they wouldn't have complete freedom of action. You know, there would be, you know, two ministers in Marion Street. One of them would be Pierce Doherty, probably in finance, and there would be a public spending minister from another party uh, working with him. And, and exactly the same institutional uh, factors would apply uh, and exactly the same political uh, pressures would be applied to them. So I, I think that is an ever-present, uh, but I think it's absolutely necessary as well. I find it interesting that public expenditure and reform, the reform just seemed to have dropped off like some kind of amputated limb. Uh, at some point, everybody just refers to it as public expenditure now. But I did want to ask you, the time clock is ticking a little bit. Mm. So I want to ask you just another question about, about Pascal Donoghue, with whom he worked for, yeah. for quite a long time. And yeah. he does seem to me to be a person of whom, who caution is part of his, his makeup and is mm. probably what, what you might want from somebody in his particular job. I mean, in your experience, particularly in your last year in the job there, when the pandemic overturned all the usual expectations, I, I look at look at financial projections and predictions. They seem to me that you could be entered for the Booker Prize for fiction a lot of the time in terms of the way they actually they actually turn out in the end. But maybe more now than for a very long time, it's really difficult to know what the future holds. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in this mm-hmm. entering this post-pandemic period. Mm-hmm. Some people say that this inflation that we're seeing is a yeah. temporary blip. Some people say it's a long-term trend. Some people welcome it. Some people see it as a as a huge danger. More locally, we have specific questions about the future of uh, of corporation tax and what impact that might have on the economy and a range of a range of other of other things. 
it, there's a lot to be said for caution right now, isn't there? And is there a lot of caution about the the unknowability of what lies ahead within within government at the moment? So I think I think it's caution, but I think it needs to be caution tempered with vision and ambition. Um, so so I think I think you're right. Caution caution is 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 right because it is a very very uncertain world uh, out there. Uh, and the world is probably moving to a new kind of global economy after the pandemic, where you know things like supply chains, inflation, uh, things like that become much more important. And then obviously, you know, climate change kind of overhangs everything uh, and and feeds into financial stability and into um, you know other dimensions of risk as well. So I think yeah, absolutely caution, but there needs to be a bit of vision uh, applied to it as well, uh, because you know the state. Uh, the state's economy really is successful because it's able to import uh, capital and import foreign direct investment. Um, and, you know, it was so important to get the OECD uh, agreement right uh, in the, in that regard, uh, because that then feeds into the long term vision for the economy. So, I mean, I think I think caution would be the watchword. But I think if you look at what the Department of Finance and Public Expenditure need to do uh, in the coming years, they kind of need to not quite reinvent the economy. But they need to put the economy onto a new kind of uh, footing for a kind of a post-pandemic uh, world and a post-kind of um, first stage of globalization world where globalization will not go away, but it will change. Uh, and it may be much less uh, about the kind of globalization that we've seen before about, you know, manufacturing stuff in different places and, you know, moving stuff offshore to capture, you know, cost gains or tax gains or things like that. It may it just may be a different form of globalization. So they need to they need to be, you know, flexible, aware of that. Uh, and then also they need to manage the challenges that the state faces, particularly around housing and make sure that that gets delivered and gets delivered in a cost effective way. Because with all this money sloshing around the system uh, and with this kind of, you know, big 10 year investment plan uh, that they have, the National Development Plan, it's really, really important that that money is used well uh, and doesn't, you know, end up purely kind of, you know, improving the bottom lines of uh, construction companies and various advisors and, you know, people uh, who will be getting their, um, their, 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 their cut. Uh, it's really, really important that the state delivers that uh, in a way that produces housing and produces infrastructure in a cost-effective way. Uh, and, you know, the experience in the past has been that, that the state hasn't been great at doing that, so it really needs to up its game there. So I think it's caution, but I do think it's also vision. Uh, and I do think it's also ambition, um, but I think an awful lot of will proceed from what happens in Marion Street between those two ministers. And a last question to you, Pat. How well equipped do you think the Irish administrative state, both elected and permanent and temporary advisors, is to deliver that vision with caution, which Ed describes there? I'm not sure how well it is, to be honest, because I think our politics tends to be, you know, increasingly short term. We're going, you know, we are, I, I think the structures of our politics uh, are 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 changing some of that is you know entirely obvious uh, as in you know Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are now basically on the one side in government they haven't worked out how to be political rivals or electoral rivals and uh, governmental allies yet so they'll have to do that does that uh, does that end up with one of them being you know always the senior partner one of them being the junior partner I'm not sure but on the other side of the aisle and I was remarking on it last week in the budget coverage is something that is you know the the, the other side of the dull chamber is no longer offering basically the same package just done more efficiently uh, or so they say it's offering something quite different or they say they are offering something quite uh, quite different so our politics is becoming more high Hyper, hyper competitive as to whether that is conducive to a government that is subsequently more effective uh, frankly i have my uh, i have my doubts about that and i think that's one of the reasons why 
the importance of the institutions. And we talked about, you know, the role of the Department of Finance, Department of Public Expenditure there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that, that role and that of independent agencies who scrutinize the government, the, the, the role of people like the, uh, the CNAG, the role of Dáil committees to interrogate spending projects and spending priorities. Um, I, I think those sort of things will become more important. We shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Ed for joining us for this chat today. Thanks also to Pat for joining us. And thank you to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and to Declan Conlon also. We're going to be back very soon. Do remember you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm